Hey there, it's Christine, your host for the Rose Woman Pot. I'm recording this in the back of a car on the way to the airport for a year-end vacation to the North Pole. Yes, it's real. I will tell you all about it when I get back. I just came off of a week with family. Spiritual teacher Ram Dass famously said, if you think you're enlightened, go spend a week with your family. And this particular gathering was no exception. My amazing extended family and children all gathered and we were in a real intimacy hotbox situation, you know? So everybody seems to save up a little bit of their story to be cleared when everyone finally gets together. And so it can be quite intense. It was very loving and also a little confrontational. And I have uh, taken a lot of walks in the woods. Um, I don't know, was it the same for you? How do you feel when your family gets together or you see people after uh, a long time apart? I think we're doing a good job as a whole in allowing each other to grow into our current selves. And still there's a lot of projection of how we used to see each other and we are trying to slow down enough to be present and parse that. This week I am sharing with you an interview from a couple of weeks ago that was done on a different channel. I was interviewed by Adam Bauer, uh, who was so well prepared to have a conversation about reverence and ritual and really went through uh, the book and picked out things that were important to him, things about grief and reentry rituals, things about slowing down. And we cover so much ground in it. It was such a rich conversation that I asked him if we could use this one for our year-end podcast. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Uh, I'm also going to share a little bit at the end about the questions that I use in setting my intentions for the year and that might also be helpful to you. So if you want to skip ahead and just listen to those year-end questions or visioning questions, please do that, but maybe you'll hang out and listen while Adam and I talk about what it means to live a life of reverence and ritual. to welcome you all out there on Facebook land. I invited my good friend Christine Mason to come join me because it's always fun to hang out with her and because she's just put out this beautiful new book and I thought it might be nice just to have a chance to talk with her about it and maybe if anybody's listening to this they get turned on a little bit to it. So let me introduce my friend Christine Mason. Christine's been one of my, if you know me, then you know that Christine's been one of my super good friends, best friends over the last probably 15 years or so. We've had many great adventures together. And I find her one of the great hearted and dedicated and truly inspired people in my life. And she inspires me to reach more deeply into my magic also because um, she's so engaged and involved in pushing the edge in beautiful ways. She's an incredible mother. She's got a number of incredibly um, embodied and beautiful children. And she's been involved in innovation and tech kind of startup uh, worlds for quite a long time and involved in culture and convening people together to inspire connection at a at a deep and nurturing level and i've been the recipient and participant in that a number of times and she's just a magical magical person she's just written a book it just came out in the last week or so called reverence hi christine hi adam i could speak about you in almost the same way so sure <laughs> Adoration Society is now convened. Indeed, indeed, <laughs> indeed. So tell us about this book, Reverence. Um, I thought I'd invite you to maybe to read from uh, kind of an invitation within the book, but tell us about this magical creature that you've just born. I believe that the evolution of my life has been along this line, like towards greater and greater care and love for the small things in life to slowing down from what the culture would have me do, which is to run all day and buy, buy, buy and consume and fall asleep and die. I don't know, <laughs> just, but like a gradual infusion of more and more awareness that everything is wonder. And, uh, and then, you know, as I came into that, I watched what was changing in my own self is that the more that I was tuned in with enchantment and magic and wonder, the more I loved the world and the more I wanted to protect it and care for it. And this is called in philosophy circles, spiritual ecology, 
but having a label for it is different than having it arise in your heart. And part of that is finding a new way of slowing down, feeling things in your body. And so I found that ritual helped me do all of that, like to really get back in my body, get back in tune with the seasons of life. And I wanted to create something beautiful. And of course, I feel like color and light and art um, is all part of that. And while you could have done this book as a series, you know, could have been a television show or TikTok, I don't know. I still love the feel of print, you know. So I started to write it. And then um, I realized that there were components where I wasn't so expert, like uh, the cycles of, of menstruation or menarche or menopause. I menopause, I could do pretty well. But there were other areas that I that I didn't have like the deepest knowledge, or I had great part uh, rituals for appreciating a partner, but I didn't have great rituals for sexual or sensual adoration. So I tapped into somebody else for that. So it went from being just my book to being a collaboration with amazing people, some of whom you know. And yep. the images too, all the pictures in the book, um, Samantha shot most of them. And uh, with on a week where we were sitting together and making beautiful mandalas and hanging out at her house and like really feeling into what it's like just to take the time to set up space. Beautiful. I'd love to hear more about Rose Woman and this Rose Woman Collective that you're kind of speaking to. I wonder if you might just begin by kind of sharing the invitation in the book with us and then, yeah, uh, sure. and then we can keep diving in. Okay, this is actually at the end of the book, so. Which I thought was an interesting call, but there it is, a beautiful invitation. <laughs> yeah, so the invitation to reverence. Uh, right now on earth, Paying attention is vital. Our awareness of all the things life brings, the tender, fierce, resilient, calm, depressing, joyous, all these aspects of life, these are what we're here to experience. These are what incarnation is about. The question is, can we go through all of these feelings with more love and less fear, with more choice and less rote repetition, with more reverence? The invitation of reverence and all the suggestions in this book for anchoring meaning in daily life is to walk in awareness, especially an awareness of our precious connections to each other and to the planet we are part of. Awareness, awareness makes us more conscious of our choice. There are many personal benefits to ritual and ceremony, of course. One of them is that being completely present is an experience, in an experience allows us to feel it and release it. We don't hold on to much. We walk through life with a lot less baggage and a lot more presence in the moment. And another beauty of moving from habitual to ritual, of savoring every experience, is that we become more awake to the wonder of being alive at all. From a spiritual ecology perspective, our love of this life might make us take better care of the world. I am love, you are love, we are love. And may reverence for our own being, for others' individuality, and for the community and ecosystems of Earth be at the heart of our evolving worldview. May we hold each other and the earth with a cosmology of care and interdependence and act from that awareness every day. That's it. <laughs> it's a beautiful book speaking to kind of the hand and the solidity of it. I'm a book person also. I come from a family of book people. So for me, all of the pixels in the world, all the digital data in the world will never quite be like uh, and this is a nice firm book. It's got nice um, kind of thick, full bodied pages and beautiful colors and imagery. So well done. It's beautiful, I think. Thank you. So tell, tell, tell folks more about the Rose Woman Collective and the, the, the crew of merry creative folks who you are currently uh, in orbit with in this way. Yeah, so Rose, when I was doing Rose Woman, it was really uh, about like a gentler form of woke, like allowing yourself to be where you are and then coming and rising from an inner power. And maybe, course, maybe speak to Rose Woman a little bit for folks who aren't familiar with that as well. Uh, like, well, Rosebud Woman was uh, is the line of intimate care products that I launched. And it really, I used to say, and I, you know, that it's a delivery vehicle for an expression of full body love and no shame. So I started with intimate care, like vulva care and all that stuff, but it's expanded to be full body care. But everything that we formulate and bring out is meant to be accompanied with positive self-talk, examination and inquiry about your own body and how you relate to your body and then gradual acceptance and moving from judgment if you still have that into like joyful inhabitation of it so as i've been evolving this uh organization uh, we started out with like little books the um an invitation to daily self-love a journal and 
we really tapped into this deep vein of taboo, like that there is not, it's not just that people's, um, it's not that we're starting from zero and increasing our, uh, our access to reverence and beauty and awe. We're actually, many of us starting from rejection of embodiment, of material reality, of like things being not perfect. And so the first phase of the of Rose Woman was to kind of move us out of taboo and to start accepting and, and then even maybe loving and being happy with you know, the way the world shows up. And now it's moved on to include this expansion. So baseline is you love and accept it. And then the expansion on it is you see all of the gifts and the reverence and you live in gratitude. And so the Rose Woman is a broader perspective than Rosebud Woman, which is the intimate care stuff. That is about this waking up to your own beauty, uh, the beauty of essential reality, of material reality as it exists. And as you and as everyone else you see, and trusting even things that look like they're not aligned, like trusting resistance, trusting adaptations, trusting that everything is kind of working in harmony to create the perfect outcome, that it has intelligence for us. So the, the Rose Woman ended up becoming like a pod and a series of blogs. I think we just released the 54th episode on the podcast today. And the books are sort of that. And also, I used to think about being an author, like, I have to do it. And more and more, I feel that the uh, people often talk about the next, the next Buddha is the Sangha, the next Jesus is the community, right. that, that whether it's with this kind of project of collaborating with other amazing writers and artists, or whether it's the Sundari project, that the more that I lean into the genius of other people and celebrate and uplift them, uh, the more beautiful the outcome. So with this book, you know, some people who are in there are Star Ryan, who's a menstruation activist, and she's got some, you know her. Love Star. Astrophysicist, uh, medicine woman. Um, another person who's in there is Kathleen Joy, who's a Burning Man artist, and she does a beautiful ritual on the empty nest. Lillian Love and Joshua Hathaway on partnered rituals of adoration. Maria Haddad on energetic rituals and self-protection, which I love because, you know, if you are a person who's very porous, Maria's stuff is basically showing you how to create boundaries, clean energy, and then like create an imaginary bubble so that you can move the, through the world with a little bit more spaciousness and response capacity, not mm -hmm. reactivity. And then Colleen Shelley, who did the last book with me also, she's just such a wonderful designer. Sam on the photography. I took a lot of those pictures too. And, and um, I just feel like Jeff, of course, Jeff Greenwald, who has been, uh, you know, he's been a trusted ally in so many ways for over a decade. You know, Jeff, he's a fantastic writer and mm -hmm. researcher. Connor um, sleeper. Yeah, another sleeper. Another sleeper did moon rituals, which he's, which is beautiful to get to know him as a visual artist and as a poet. And then, of course, all the collaborators on the pod. I met this amazing woman, Nicole Hodges, who is uh, always sparking me in everything from, you know, BDSM to virginity doesn't exist to men who take baths and are interviewed in their in their tender places. Yeah. I take baths. I'm a big bath. I'm a big bath fan. <laughs> but but that you know, or like today's pod was Christian de la Huerta, who's this, who wrote Awakening the Soul of Power. So men and women around the world who are asking important questions and expanding our possibility. I've been starting to call it not programming, but deprogramming. <laughs> Perfect. That, totally. yeah, that, that the whole thing is about deprogramming. Totally. And, um, we have a lot to shake loose and let go of in this culture. Hey, and the fundamental deprogram is like, you're not perfect as you were born. Totally. So, Something uh, wrong with all this, and I'm in the middle of what's wrong. Yeah. Beautiful. Right. You mentioned uh, Sundari. Uh, maybe tell folks just a little bit about that. It's a beautiful kind of community with a healing-focused community vibe. You want to share just a little bit about what's happening over there? Because that's another area where you're helping push the cultural edge a little bit and inviting in kind of a reverence in a lifestyle, in a, in a way of being in community. Yeah, I think you're going to hear that theme all all over and over about how it's easier to live a reverent lifestyle when you're bonded together with other people mm -hmm. that do it. In it, Christian was talking about this thing today, uh, imaginal cells in a butterfly from the, like the caterpillar has already the DNA of the butterfly, but it fights it. 
over and over mm. and that and that, that they call the cells of the butterfly that are living inside the caterpillar imaginal cells and that as the imaginal cells get stronger as the caterpillar eats more and more food the imaginal cells form imaginal clusters and they somehow in their clustering overcome the, the caterpillar destroy the caterpillar from inside and then emerge as something completely different. And so like, if that wasn't a perfect uh, metaphor for what we're trying to do around the world in global eco villages, intentional communities, communities of awakening is to create a living alternative for the way the world could be while our global systems are being challenged to create very hyper-local opportunities for deep connection, living together in rhythm, uh, meditating together, doing sports together, working together, um, making music, dancing together, and then also dealing with the emotional stuff that we've carried and de-patterning. So when John Shiva, my uh, business partner on this project, and I started uh, Sundari five years ago, we didn't really know exactly how it would unfold, but through the grace and miracle of a volcano flow and COVID, it's uh, worked into a residential community and uh, one that is surprising me every day in the way people bring their love and presence and coherence into making a new way of living together. Um, which I hope we're learning enough from to document and share with other people that it's like an ongoing experiment um, in living in living well. I would say one other thing on that is like I watched the the community there work on reconciliation, speaking what is true in ways that even after years of doing it make me nervous as a child of divorce and a broken home and moving all the time. Like when I hear people go into conflict. I get like a little, oh my God, is mom, are mom and dad going to break up? Ah, is the family going to collapse? And I sit with those discomfortable, uncomfortable feelings. And then I watch them feel, breathe. I watch myself feel and breathe, say what's true, reflect one another. And then at the end, emerge embracing and still belonging. And that that piece of like finding a way to be completely authentic, to have your stories unwound in the company of others, and to still belong is a magical alternative to what I've known personally. I think to what so many of us have known. I mean, who among us has grown up in a system where we didn't take on a whole bunch of convoluted, distorted adaptations to the dysfunction around us? I mean, when you were saying, you know, speaking the truth, it's that's a scary, that's a scary thing because to be fully seen in ourselves is to risk being rejected basically, or like maybe not, you know, if we share the parts of us that even we are, you know, don't feel great about or feel ashamed about, then it brings up a lot. So to be, to be able to really speak freely, honestly, that's one of the things Maharaj used to say is like, always tell the truth. And, you know, it sounds like, oh yeah, always tell the truth. But if you actually think about it, boy, always tell the truth, to live a life where one always tells the truth is actually a kind of a radical spiritual practice, a radical practice of being present with reality and dealing with the repercussions of it. Yes, and, and I know you know this from the Thomas work. Uh, one thing, um, Adam and I were lucky to spend three years with Thomas Hubel in the same program, and that's around collective trauma healing. And one thing you learn is that what you believe to be true, if you're coming from unprocessed trauma, is often is often seeing what is real, like this flower, you know, is this this flower, I'm gonna see this flower, which is apparently now molting. See this flower through um, an old lens that I'm not gonna see its colors accurately or its shape accurately. And so it'll be true from my inner experience, but it won't be objectively true. And that the more that we can be with people who see us over time, that can help us unwind any Old, old lenses, old blinders that make us convinced that our story about something is true and really see it from how it is now. Coming more and more present is a critical part of both truth-telling and, um, and, and, and kind of dropping in and experiencing, feeling your life, you know? Coming present lets you be in your life and not in the past. I actually feel like being present is the, mo the biggest gift you can give. To someone yeah i feel that yeah so 
Let's talk about reverence. What does what does reverence mean to you? What does reverence mean? I want to talk a little bit about humility first and then bring it up to that. So there's like all of these components that are intermingled in the book. Humility, enchantment, magic, reverence, ritual, and they're kind of tied together in this sort of beautiful weave. And that humility, the root word of humility is humus, like earth. And that it's not this, that you are basically remembering that you are of the earth. It's not that you are less than, it's that you are part of, you are included, you're part of the earth's soil. And to be bowing down to the infathomable intertwined mystery that is the ecosystem of earth that our bodies live as part of. And so from that place, you know that scientists who first suggested that blood circulated in the body were put to death. You know that people who said that the sun uh, didn't circle around the earth were put to death, that the entire history of scientific observation is looking increasingly at smaller and smaller things and farther and farther away things, that our instrumentation, uh, as it expands our vision, teaches us so much more about the mysteries of how things work, and that to have the humility to know that you don't know that we are at the baby, baby steps of perception of how everything fits together. And to be to allow that wonder to overtake you, so much so that you begin to see that system as a magical, enchanted interweaving. And then you get on your knees and you say, how is this even possible? At all of these beauties. You know, I was walking today, I went out for my lunch break, um, and I'm in the in the in Marin right now in the Redwoods and I walk around to the, the trails and it's been raining for three straight days and the sun has come out and the waterfall is just like whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. the pools are rolling the creek is a river and I run across this guy from Channel 5 News and he wants to ask me what my opinion is about the Marin Water District's restrictions on water use as, and I'm like are you kidding? This abundance is like a complete blessing in a drought-stricken state. We're so graced to have an organization who's helping us understand and govern water use. And in the meantime, look at this miracle. Let's go look at the falls together. And so I took him up and showed him where the falls was. And he's like, ah, oh, enchanted, coming from the city, doesn't see that every day. So um, and then I walk a little farther and there's this guy and he's wearing pinstripe dickies and a little news cap and he's got his dog and he just was so appealing. And so I said, hello to him. His name is Loyal and he uh, shows me how to choose a mushroom and, and look at its underside and understand if it's a spongy mushroom that you can dry it and eat it. And then he says, yes, takes a big breath. And he goes, I, tr I try to live a life of reverence. And I was like, you know what? You can't write this stuff. It's like your tribe appears. You get a chance to show people the wonders and other people show you the wonders. And, you know, he's down on his knees in the, in the pine muck and, and he takes out his pen knife and he says, you never pick them. You never pull them. You always cut them so that they can regrow. And he hands it to me as an offering, you know? So that to me is like, I could have walked by that guy. You know, I could have been like, I'm getting my steps in. You know, or I could breathe with the trees and listen to them and, you know, open my heart. And it's such a, a different way to live. So, so being in magic, being in enchantment, and then allowing that to inform your wonder. And, you know, being in the wonder is sometimes hard. I run a company, I have a big family. It's sometimes hard when you get busy. And so a way to uh, accelerate or to ensure that participation is to put it into a ritualized form. Um, you know, ritual and spiritual are not tied etymologically, but I feel like they should be. Spiritual comes from spiritus and ritual comes from rites, but there's something in the middle, rit, which sounds an awful lot to me like the root word of rhythm. And that, you know, that this idea of, of if I put a rhythm in my day, of like opening it up with praise and opening it up with appreciation and ending it with gratitude and appreciation. If I put a ritual to be with the seasons, with the, with the earth as it turns, if I put a ritual to the seasons of my life, to welcoming someone into coming, coming of age or going through a milestone, to bringing someone back after grief or, or 
whatever prodigal returning, then there's there's a, a higher likelihood that we will be in rhythm and in sync together. Um, that's a long answer to your question. Forgive mm. me going, I will just keep talking. <laughs> that's beautiful. Mm. There's a quote, you have a quote, I mean, there's a number of um, beautiful and provocative quotes in the book. There's one that, um, that I love that says, the real is just as magical as the magical is real. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love that quote. Whose quote is that again? Let me. Uh, that's Ernst Younger in Sicilian Letters to the Moon. Um, I just love that, but it's it's true. Like you hear of people who are really like physicists, like Einstein. Einstein became. He said, "The more I know about physics, the more I'm interested in metaphysics." Was another quote of his, and you know this this idea that the closer and deeper you look at a system. Uh, it's impossible not to be wonder, and and uh, whether you're approaching it from material reality or or the other side, which I also talk about in the book, is that what is evolution and innovation other than an imagined thing that someone makes real? And how can imagine if it's an imagined thing that you make real? How is that not magic? You know. So I feel like like the translation or the transmission of the of the conceptual or the uh, or the visionary into material reality that's what's done through our body but it is still a, a constant beautiful exchange of the conceptual and the carbon. Mm, beautiful. You wrote something um, a quote of yours in the book that I also thought was interesting early on. When I stop trying to be in mastery. I can allow for the mystery. Do you like to be surprised? <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> when you like to be surprised, you cannot be controlling everything. All the time. I'm curious uh, your thoughts on some of the kind of light and shadow aspects of this, because in a way, like we have a we have a cultural bent towards mastery, right? And it, part of that's wondering, you know, always pushing the boundary of learning and self-expression and to continue evolving and refining is like part of the beauty of life, right? And that's there's part of that that's wonderful. But then also somehow sometimes it seems that the 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 search for mastery, the search for self-development sometimes has its own shadow element sometimes. And so and, and it, I was stimulated a little bit by that quote in terms of the the, let's the, take the, the things that you and I both, let's take an example from you. So you, I, I know you always, uh, you often are hard on yourself about your devotion to your musical practice. So you don't think you're like that disciplined, but let's just say you love music and you've been practicing for a long time. And so you move more and more towards mastery just because you know how to make music doesn't mean that you can't be also in the mystery of why music creates such wonder and why it vibrates people's cells in the ways that it does and why music and how music isn't the same as doing it. And, you know, I love yoga. I've been practicing for 20 years. It's so magical. I can master the postures. I can do all the breathing exercises, but that doesn't stop me every time I fall off my practice and come back from being in the mystery of, wow, this stuff really works. How is that possible? You know, that I can still be in wonder and appreciation and gratitude about something that I know a lot of. And what you find, what I find is that there, the, the deeper I get into a thing, the more the infinite speciation of detail and art that I can invite into it. You know, I, I heard this thing once, like, if something's a profession, it's a profession for a reason, like house painting or accounting or whatever. Like if it's a profession, it has its own secrets and its own subtleties and its own art, and you should trust it. And um, for people who are very competent, sometimes they denigrate professions that don't seem like it would require that much mastery. But each one like has the potential to expand infinitely in how to optimize it. But you still don't lose like, the wonder of what a beautifully painted room or well-kept books might create in you, like the sense of order or beauty, um, or math itself. Math itself is a wonder. So does that does that help a little bit? Like, how do I be continually learning, but not with an attitude of domination, but with an attitude of inhabiting? And also, one other thing on that, so interesting. Mm -hmm. One other thing is, and not with an attitude that if I master it, I will be more valuable. Mm -hmm. Like if you master it, you'll still be you, which is already perfectly valuable as you are, just with a new skill. Yeah, that opens up a whole nother 
can of worms in terms of how we, yeah, how we self-value, how we, the stories we tell ourselves about what we need to do to pull our weight or belong, you know, what we need to produce in order to be worthy of this incarnation, where sometimes it seems like just being in the awe and wonder and magic of it sort of seems lazy, maybe from the outside, but might be closer to fulfilling the kind of divine birthright of just, oh my God, having these bodies. Not that we shouldn't try to serve other people and be productive, but there's also just sort of this wild-eyed wonder of observing the processes of nature and the miracle that it is to just be here on any given moment. And that that's actually enough without our having to like produce stuff and contribute to the gross national nightmare. Right. No contributing to the gross national. Well, I mean, you know, not that it's necessarily <laughs> bad to, but when we, when we measure our worth about how much we're participating in some economic structure, you know, then we're losing, we're losing some of the potency of what the mystery offers us, which is a chance to just be satisfied and, and overflowingly grateful and, and cognizant of and participating in the beautiful miracle of this life, just as it is. That, that is true. And also uh, the widgetization of you as an economic unit, where you're really only valuable when you're healthy and productive. So basically, after you finish school and before you're retired, and particularly when you're not sick or injured, that that that's when you're valuable. And the whole culture is like catered to that body of people. Mm. And everyone else is like a, a drag on the system. It's such an interesting and inaccurate portrayal of what it means to live in a human ecosystem, much less with Earth. And that we we had a we have a a, a guest um, on the land for several weeks now who has been recovering from a beating his feeling is is like he he expressed the feeling of like not wanting to be a burden and this idea that somehow when i become ill or i become injured or i become old or something like that that i'm a burden is is such a perversion of the natural order of life like everyone's going to go through that at one point you'll be a child at one point you'll be an elder you know and and to see that each of those is important for the ecosystem. It's, it's not about you as an individual. It's about all of us over a, a much more holistic view of what worth is. It, it, remi it reminds me of a number of years ago, uh, somewhere down in Brooklyn, I took a weekend workshop with Betty Martin, where she was teaching her Wheel of Consent and some of her other pretty groundbreaking work. And uh, at some point, there was a sort of raise hands, uh, you know, who who feels more comfortable kind of asking for help or, or receiving from other people and who feels more comfortable contributing to the well-being of other people. And granted, it was a bit of a self-selecting group of practitioners in the kind of giving and healing arts and everything. But still, if I recall correctly, not a single person raised their hand and said, oh, yeah, it's easier for me to receive. Everybody feels like we're organized around somehow kind of giving and contributing and to just actually receive the support and help God forbid we ask for it. It's that's that's a you know an abiding mm -hmm. shadow component I think mm -hmm. in in this culture in this life. You know maybe that, it's just that, me talking about. No, that translates even into the breath. Mark Whitwell, who you know is um, one of my teachers, he said early on, watch when you teach because almost everyone will have a much longer exhale than they have an inhale, and that even receiving your own breath, this participation as he calls it, this participation in life itself. Full inhale, full exhale, even even receiving and even giving, you know, that you're in this flow and dance of life. That's that's very true. I remember like a man that I ended up in a five-year relationship with on our first intimate experience. He said, No, no, tonight all you're doing is receiving. And I, I when I tried to reciprocate his affection and I started weeping. I I, I mean. I didn't even know how. And um, yeah, it was a pretty transformative moment, actually. Mm. Yeah, that's a form of reverence. Self-reverent also to allow yourself to receive, like to let your little animal body be held and, and take in the air and take in the nourishment it needs. Beautiful. 
there's a number of chapters in the book really kind of focusing on and exploring a variety of different rituals, ritual containers and styles for marking different elements of, um, of life, you know, coming of age and eldering and women's cyclical and a number of other um, ways of honoring and participating in the flow of our experience of life through ritual. I'm curious, what what is what is ritual? What does ritual mean to you? Like, how did you how did you tap into what feels to you like a way of ritualizing your life to invite something else in? I think it was a moving from like autonomic nervous system living, like I'm just on habit, I'm on rote to stopping and taking the time to do it in a conscious way to feel that's also be about becoming present. Um, but I will say that I was, that I was influenced heavily by watching others. Like I remember the first time that you and I traveled and the first thing you did was unpack an altar, you know, out of the little Kirtan kit comes a picture of Maharaji and some little thing. And, and I was like, really like any hotel room, any place you went. And I was like, that's so amazing. And I started carrying a little sandalwood box that had tiny little objects for my altar, even when I was still doing tech work. Like I was, I would land in a hotel and I'd take out my little altar. And um, I noticed how just by presencing these larger forces in my life, family, teachers, symbols of element, that I felt more grounded to what was permanent and real. And so it wasn't like an external prescription. It was uh, an emergence from watching what actually worked in my life. You know, as a yogi, you get trained to do certain kinds of rituals, morning meditation, you get trained to um, try to rise before the sun, do your practice so that you're ending in a sit as the sun rises, and then start with lemon juice and water and have like a ritualized morning that isn't overtaken by your cell phone or whatever, that you are in more aware choice. And that is very ritualized until it is um, a lifestyle. And, you know, there are other things that, that go counter cyclical, counter cultural, like one of the big things, and you know, it's, it's rosebud informed, but it's also definitely informed by my personal experience. But many feminists will talk about this and many people who study sort of the way modern culture has, 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 uh, emerged is it's linear taxonomical on a on a clock on a time clock and that women's bodies and women's embodiment is very cyclical but the entire structure of the world is not that you're supposed to like play a part of and fit into is linear and so the fact that on some days of the month you're like aggressive and and hyper and ready to go uh, you know and on some days of the month your natural endocrinology and, neuro, and your neurobiology is like in, in recess, you're in receptivity, you're in quietude, um, you're resetting, you're emptying. Like for a good chunk of your adult life, that is the way your embodiment works. And yet the whole culture is uh, structured to deny that. In fact, you're supposed to wear a floppy bow tie and the equivalent of a broad shouldered suit jacket still in many parts of the culture and, and disguise that embodiment. And what actually riding that curve is a superpower when you harmonize with that you know create ritual around it you are like a surfer who's like on the wave not fighting the wave not trying to paddle into uh you know the peak of the wave you're you're in a in a more harmonious place that is ultimately better for your own embodiment and for everyone you're serving or working with but to learn how to do that in a culture that didn't give you any rituals requires a little bit of research. So that's an example of one where we write about writing the cycle of the, the monthly cycle um, in the book. Uh, the other ritual, there's another ritual in there that is often ignored. I don't know, a lot of you know my peers were in our 50s and um, I was early to the empty nest and I call it the free period because I was like, woohoo, party time. You know, it was good for me. But for a lot of people, it, it comes with a lot of sorrow and, um, and complex feelings. And so when uh, Kathy Joy and I were doing the ritual of the empty nest, one of the things we included was when you're doing your speaking your truth into the circle, um, you say all the shitty parts about parenting too. 
all the parts you're not going to miss at all. And, and that you speak all of the aspects, the positive and the negative, and you don't create some sort of paralyzed, frozen nostalgia about the way it was. It helps you move through, move through into the next phase more peacefully, equanimously, I guess. Mm, beautiful. You had a lot of ritual. Your home is very ritualized. Nikki Doan was, had a lot of ritual in her life. Um, just in the way she practiced. I really love that. There are certain people who have kitchen rituals, like the way they prepare a meal is very beautiful. Mm -hmm. So look around. If it's not in your life today, then look around and see who's got it and in what domain and what feels right to you. Mm. You write in the book about presence being a form of reverence and that presence can be understood as intimacy with the real. Yeah. That's a little bit what I was alluding to before. Like it's not intimacy with my projection of the real, it's intimacy with the real. So when we started the Thomas program, so Thomas Hubel um, is a teacher. He wrote a wonderful book on collective trauma healing uh, that's quickly becoming a classic. But in his work uh, was the first time I was exposed to this idea of the three sync, as you know, but anybody who's listening who um, has never heard of the three sync, it's a, before you even begin and engage with someone else, you pause and check in, which we can only do right now with our own body and our emotions and our mind. And let's see if we can kind of notice where they're not on the same frequency and like breathe them into alignment. And then you keep noticing your own body while you tune into the other person and you're noticing them, but you're noticing yourself, you have like dual located awareness. So you, and then you pay attention to when in the interaction, you lose contact with your own self by going out, leaning out to fix them or like really getting into their story, but you forget yourself. Or when you lose contact with the other person and you contract and pull away, and notice that whatever they're saying is triggering you in some way that you have to come back and you can no longer feel them. And so it's a really subtle way to practice being aware of yourself while in full contact with the environment and the people that you're with. Not in some story and, and also like beginning to notice when you leave your body when you, you know, the, and, you know, thank those adaptations. But the more that we can come into presence right here without the old story, without the old lens, the more uh, we see things as they are. And it's that intimacy, it's that closeness that I feel we cultivate when we slow down. Mm. You wrote in the book that spirituality is the, this is like spirit, spirituality, I don't know, I'm, I, I'm way on the other side of the track, so I'm used to all kinds of wild and crazy language, but sometimes this spirituality world can get a little bit woo and can feel a little bit ungrounded or a little bit um, loopy. And partly that's because it's so amazing. I suppose it kind of has to be, otherwise it wouldn't truly represent the mystery of life. But, but sometimes I yearn for a kind of a grounding of spiritual tendency in a way. And so I appreciate what you wrote here when you write that spirituality is the awareness of the deep interconnectedness of all life and matter a relational awareness of how we fit in with things that can be true and honest and authentic, no matter what form of religious practice or spiritual tradition, it may express itself through that in a way at the heart that, that that's sort of the feeling at the heart. This is what I took from what you were writing anyway, at the heart of any particular tradition that people happen to, you know, dig or grew up in or that was, you know, works for them. It's really this, peace dwelling inside of that which is this recognizing of our interconnectedness with all life and that if the tradition is spinning off on power and control or here's how it has to look like and you know the people who don't go along we're gonna you know kind of jail and and harass whatever then we're kind of drifting a little bit off the plot but that at the core of it all is this recognition of the way we are part of the fabric of of the whole of the interconnectedness of all life. That is the conclusion I've come to that the heart of spirit is like the same thing as inspire and expire. It's, it's breathing with it's a, uh, it's the exchange of energy and that that's at the heart of spiritual, that there's this mat, this field 
of energetics that is we're all bound by, that the space between you and I is alive, the space between ourselves is alive, um, that we're all sort of in this energetic soup together. In Hawaiian, the word for breath is ha. And when you say aloha, you're greeting the part of the other person that breathes the same breath as you. When they criticize Westerners, and uh, Kanakas crit criticize Westerners, they say hauli, hauli, which is he who does not breathe. And the idea of we're all breathing the same air, we're inspiring and expiring in the same ways. And, and that once you tap into that, there's no dark matter. <laughs> there's no black holes. I mean, they might be, but there's nothing that's not alive. I mean, even the densest things, rock and metal are alive. Mm -hmm. That they are, they are, they still have spaciousness and breath inside of them, the same breath that's in us. So if something is dogmatic and it is coming in a religious context that denies the reality of everything being alive and valuable. It's jumped the shark, so to speak. You know, it's lost the original purpose. The interesting thing is like you look at the mystical, uh, mystical aspect of any religion and they have almost the same described experience. The Sufis and in Islam or the Kabbalists and Judaism or the mystic Christians like Meister Eckhart or Hildegard von Bingen, they all describe it in the same way that you can get there in any way you can, but don't mistake the rules and regulations on the way to getting there as the truth. The truth is that sensation of everything being interconnected and alive and infinitely valuable. Any religion that wants to politicize you into a, creating a world that separates has lost the thread. Yeah, says Christine. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I think you have some customers for that perspective. Mm -hmm. I was um, I was really moved in the book that you have a, a chapter on grief rituals contribution there from your as you mentioned before your longtime collaborator Jeff Greenwald. I was really I was really touched by a couple of maybe I'll share one or two of them because just to, to offer a little flavor of, of what the book is on page 113 here. So describing uh, during an interactive stage show in San Francisco, audience members were invited to step onto the stage to spin a large wheel of fortune. A volunteer uh, took his place beside the wheel. He was dressed in a military style vest covered with buttons, identifying him as an army veteran. Where did you serve? The host asked. Vietnam, the man replied. In response, the host offered the default declaration. Thank you for your service. There was a brief pause before the volunteer replied, please don't ever say that to a Vietnam vet. He said tersely. The audience fell silent. In that awkward moment, the host replied, what should I say? The vet looked him straight in the eye and said, say, welcome home. And boy, welcoming veterans home from the battlefield is a part of the important realities of life in, I feel like in our culture, which has been essentially invisible. I remember years ago, my mother and I were on a trip together. The only real trip we kind of took her and I together, a little adventure when we went over to, um, to tour Sicily. My mother was an opera fan. And so she said, Hey, uh, my husband, for some reason, doesn't want to go to Sicily and Southern Italy to go check out a bunch of good music with me. Do you want to come? And so, um, while we were there, we did uh, a kind of a day trip up to a place. Um, I believe it was kind of on the north, uh, northwest uh, cornerish, I believe of Sicily, a place called Erice. And it was an old walled city up on a cliff, kind of looking down over into the water and kind of an amazing spot. And, our tour guide was describing it as a place where warriors at the end of the campaign would come and spend some time in this walled city being essentially loved back to a wholeness that would allow them to return to the society and participate again, not just to come from the battlefield and get spit out on the streets. Um, in many cases, maybe, you know, without the support that is needed to sort of transition. And I, I remembered that and, and boy, talk about missing rituals. Talk about things that we don't do well in terms of helping people transition from extraordinary, strong, difficult 
experiences back into a place where they can kind of be part of the whole again, be part of like regular life. There's a scene, do you remember the movie, The Hurt Locker? I don't, I'm not sure I ever saw that one. It's a, it won a, it won the Academy Award. And um, there's a scene where this man who's been defusing bombs in the Middle East comes back home and he's supposed to, his tour of duty has ended and he's standing in the grocery store in the cereal aisle with Muzak playing in the background, holding a shopping cart with a child in it. And he's so overwhelmed by the placid, placid, so disconnected from life and death, from where he just came from, from the people who are like sacrificing themselves and the intensity of that experience, that he can't actually take it. And he goes back. Mm. That the contrast is just too great. It doesn't even feel um, like it's the same universe. Mm. Uh, but I love this. This this is such a beautiful phrase, loved back into belonging. And that can come in a lot of ways. You know, that that can be war, that can be being in prison, that can be being on a walkabout or a journey. Some people step away from everything they've known to try to find out something new about themselves and re-entry is hard. It can be coming back from addiction. You know, oh, you're back. I'm so glad to see you. Um, I trust that you're coming back into yourself after this period of being checked out and that you learn something. You know, there's a lot of ways to do it, but to ritualize that and to involve the community is what, what is what Jeff's writing about in, in that particular one. We have, yeah. That's a re-entry ritual. And there are also grief rituals like, how do you say goodbye consciously at the end of a relationship or when a relationship is changing? Or how do you invite a new beginning? And, you know, these the things that we put in the book are, they all work, but it's also a beginning point for your own experimentation of what you want to ritualize. Yeah. Like the idea is everyone's co-creative. So this is meant to spark something. I actually have a blank journal that goes with it. Um, that is meant for you to capture your own rituals. Oh yeah, you have the journal. Oh, that's it. <laughs> it's beautiful. The whole the whole presentation and package is beautiful. Yeah, this comes with the book, or at least it did in my package. That that is meant to say, look, I want you to take note of the rituals you try from the book, and then how you feel after, and how they change you, and and also to note what rituals are new for you and which ones you create on your own, and let that become almost a a legacy that you could pass on to someone in your family so that just to keep it with the book and, and um, try to make your own ritual journal. That's what that's about. Mm. Create some space for yourself, you know, uh, or your relationship or your engagement with the community or with the cycles of life and allow it, just allow that, allow that beauty and meaning to deepen. Yeah. Well, such a pleasure to be with you always and i want to just congratulate you on a beautiful book um you and the rosalind collective really produced something something of value here something beautiful here so um again for all you listeners out there in radio land um the book is reverence it's just been published uh this month and um available wherever it's available. I'm not sure how you're doing distribution, if it's out there in the Amazonian. It's on, on rosewoman.com and it's on Amazon land. Uh, we, I think we're about almost sold out of the first shipment. Fantastic. Whoa, how did that happen? So I'm happy about that. The reviews have been really lovely. And I've done other books. I did this book last year, but like everything else, the nine gifts, like, like everything I do, like there's a period of, okay, that's done. Phew, <laughs> off my plate. And like, can I get back to whatever I was doing? Like actually being reverent, I suppose. But there is a little bit of a postpartum letdown once you get something out the door. And I noticed that it's really rare and difficult. Like I don't like promoting it because I, I don't like the idea of promotion. Sure. But I love talking about the ideas. Right. So when you said, do you want to do this? I was like, I was really moved that you wanted to spend some time talking about it. And um, I appreciate the amount of thought and effort you put into your questions and into reading through it, it means a lot to me. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. Well, God bless you on all your efforts and uh, any parting words for anybody who's tuning in here. I would like to just take a moment and talk about shifting the place where you think ideas come from. 
people say to me often, like, I don't know how you get so much done or you're always so doing they have all these things. But I feel like a long time ago, I shifted from I don't have ideas to ideas have me. And this is echoed by great artists, much greater artists than I, like Tom Waits. He said he was driving down the Pacific Coast Highway once and an idea for a song came to him and he goes, God, give the song to someone else. Can't you see I'm driving? <laughs> and that similarly in, in, in certain uh, forms of Buddhism, there's always uh, uh, this idea that there are Easter eggs out there in consciousness that are waiting to be grabbed and written down when the time is ripe. Mm-hmm. And that ideas, and, and that's also one of the reasons that discoveries quote unquote simultaneously happen all over the world at the same time is like the ideas are looking for people who will make them material mm-hmm. and that becoming a good receiver and a good channel uh is 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 part of the art and it's part of the reason i sit and meditate and and listen for like oh that's cool and then ask the secondary question like but what's mine to do that's a great idea but is it mine to do mm-hmm. and that to sort of invite yourself in, even if you do no rituals, to invite more of experiencing life as being one component in an energetic or electrical system of, of life, passing from one to the other, letting it move through you. You're like you're not the generator, nor are you the holder of all responsibility. It's much more fluid than that. Mm. Preach it, sister. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Howdy, 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 howdy. Thank you so much for hanging out for that conversation with Adam and I. It is the end of the year, and as I promised in the introduction, I wanted to give you my guiding questions uh, that have served me so well for many years through a lot of different projects and experiences. I ask, what is a place where I'm lit up What's giving me energy? Where do I find joy? That's sort of the first question when I look at the year. What, another way of articulating that is, where am I acting out of pure love for a thing, not out of duty or obligation, but just my love is leading my activity? I want to move, I want to create, I want to write, I want to talk to you on this podcast. And that stuff comes so easily, there's no resistance. So I ask that question and obviously trying to put more and more energy into those things uh, tends to make a happier life. And then it's opposite. Who, what, where, when, what, what's a drain? When do I go flat? When do I shut down? When do I contract? Around specific people, in specific tasks, and then I try to do less of those. And if they have to be done by someone, then I find someone to help me for whom it's not a drain. And in that way, things do get done that are obligatory but aren't in my skill set or sweet spot and it's the same way if someone else who's good at those things didn't have what I was good at so I don't think we have to do it all ourselves so that's the second question where are the drains and then going to and trying to eliminate those Um, and then the third question I ask is if I were to sit really still and invite a picture of my future self to come to me, what is the image? What future is pulling me? Where do I know I'm going to? And the immediate question after that is, what is it in my thought patterns or my habits that needs to shift in order for that vision to come true? So I find that the thought pattern and, and habitual thought question, you know, where do I get into thinking loops uh, self-talk that's not helpful, that that is hard to parse alone. So it really helps me when I have someone who is a co-conspirator in change. So after I go through that, I take a look at how are my, my circles doing. My model for life planning isn't linear. It's not like here, I'm here, I want to get here, it's a goal. It's more like a toroid or a pipe that is open to receive at the top and to give at the bottom. Like things are just flowing through me, constantly being energized and then executing from that. And for me, I moved from kind of a, an idea that everything was coming from me and I was doing things to things were coming 
through me and as me over the last decade. And the very first thing on my, the, at the center of my life is what I would call the well of spirit. And what that means from a life planning perspective is, am I checking in, am I living from this awareness of interconnection and interdependency? Am I tapping in through meditation or movement or, or singing or chant or walks in nature to the universal great I am, der große Ich Bin, you know, on a regular basis. And if that is strong, if that connection to source is strong, then the next ring out of self-care and seeing myself as nature and the, the sort of basics of taking care of this embodiment, health and pleasure, is the next thing. You know, you might have heard about this from as the golden goose in the Covey days or, you know, this idea of no one else is going to feed you or move your body or monitor your thoughts or help you become your wholest and best self or heal your traumas, that's on you. But if you're well of spirit and your self-care is strong, you're in a much better position to then look at what is, for me, the ring of stability. The things that are the basic care of your body, like your home as a sanctuary, your basic financial, your money story, and your intimate relationships. And that those three things, if they're solid, and that could be, for some people, money stability is like, I've got three months of rent in the bank. And for some people, it's like, I can take care of 30 years of retirement. That's a, where you find your anxiety is individualized. The same thing on home, like for some people, as long as they know where their laptop, a charger, and their good tennis shoes are, they feel at home. And other people like really need a stable physical environment. So it doesn't, it doesn't have to be one kind of intimate relationship or one kind of home or what money store, but it has to be set up in such a way that it's not a drain for you energetically, that it's not a distraction. Because it, if it's an energy leak or a distraction, it's very difficult to have momentum in the main projects of your life. And so once you have this well of spirit, this uh, circle, this ring of health, self-health and pleasure, and then this ring of stability, out of there come all the projects and things we're learning and initiatives and all of that stuff. And they are fueled by this incredible strong core. So the third exercise I do in the year-end planning is related to all the activities that are on my plate. Uh, so I make a list of everything that takes my energy and that's projects and sometimes it's you know habitual thought patterns, sometimes it's dreams or things I'm visioning and I put them all down. And then I kind of look at them and I grade them, like, like, are they, how in line are they with my dharma, vision, purpose? Like, do I feel, are they those energizers? And I give those A's. And then the things that I'm kind of doing out of duty or obligation is a B. Things that are, like, I, it's a favor, I, a distraction, I, you know, it's a C. And then the things that are just dastardly and I don't want to be doing them and I'm just in a habitual rut or like some task that I'm really bad at, those get a D. And then I cut all the B's and C's and I really try to create a gracious ex exit where I honor my obligations, but I make clear my bound of time and end it. And if the thing's a D, I give it a little extra time because sometimes the D's are more, they, they, they can be a true drain, but sometimes they're like an, a thing that I'm avoiding because I don't want to grow in that area because there's some kind of shadow or trauma. So it takes some extra time to go, what I'm really avoiding something, is there an opportunity for me to grow here? A lot of the times what I find is that the B's and the C's are the things that I wasn't a full yes to in the beginning, which kind of reteaches me how to be clear on what I am a yes to because I end up you know, putting time into a lot of stuff that's just like, I want to be a nice person. Um, so increasingly like cultivating and directing my energy into things that matter. And then I do check in, like, do these things still matter? Like, has the environment changed in the world such that the contribution I can make in that area is no longer significant? It's not on my dharma anymore. I've changed so that I don't get stuck just doing things because I've been doing them and it's my identity that I got so taught, caught up in the identity piece. And then I guess the last thing I want to say is there is no obligation to do anything and that this sort of domination of, of, of the doer or the activist, you could just do nothing and enjoy your life and that the only 
thing that I want to be doing are the things that are genuinely arising as a flow through me from, you know, this sort of greater consciousness. So for me, I'm putting my list together for 2022. There's so much exciting stuff happening. There's so much need out there. This is definitely the time to be waking up, stepping out, magnifying, shining out your best self. And I would love to hear from you what you're visioning, what you're dreaming, uh, what's draining you that you're gonna knock off your plate and what you're energized by. I hope that this coming year is an exquisite awakening, an exquisite and joyful and productive year where you feel at ease in yourself and you're creating magnificent things in the world, where you're nested in a loving community and you have good affection and uh, intimacy with a person that you care about if that's your jam, that you're serving in some way, that basically it's the best year ever for you. So thank you for joining me and Adam in this interview. I hope that you got something out of my little visioning thing at the end. And if you enjoyed this episode, please pause and think of someone who might enjoy it also and text them a link. It would really help me uh, get the word out. Also, I was happy to hear that in our first year of the pod, we are now in the top 10% of podcasts worldwide. Um, so you are telling people, yay. All right, check me out at the.rose.woman on Instagram or my company at Rosebud Woman. And of course, the link to the company is rosewoman.com where you can find exquisite, exquisite, intimate skincare, performance body care, lifestyle products, the books, candles, all kinds of cool stuff. All right, happy, happy new year. 